Welcome to the sermon podcast from Compass Church. In this August 1st, 2021 sermon, Pastor Craig Kidder wraps up the What is the Bible series with this message on the book of Revelation. Focusing in on Christ's corrective instruction from the church at Laodicea, Pastor Craig points to the value of a high-love, high-accountability church model as well as the relationship between victory and self-sacrifice. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com. Today's a big day. All right, this is a day you might tell your grandkids. I don't know. Maybe, probably, possibly. Uh, Today is potentially, probably, the last day you will do hand motions in church as an adult. If you're new, you're like, what are you talking about? Uh, we We are ending, we are wrapping up today our series on what is the Bible And we are crossing the finish line. And so uh, I thought it was only appropriate that we had like kind of a final exam with these hand motions. And again, if you're new, I swear we're not a cult. Uh, I feel like that's what cults say. But uh, here's what we're going to do. I won't make you do the hand motions today. Okay. I won't make you do the hand motions today, but how about we do this? How about... Uh, you say the, the words, the 12 words, and then I'll do the hand motions, all right? Can we do that? We feel, is everyone's anxiety rising? How are we doing? Great. Okay, so like just for example, uh, you guys will say, I'll do this, and you'll say, ah! It's, we're learning. We've learned something these past 12 weeks. This is beautiful. By the way, by the way, we only did them 10 weeks, okay? So we had, there, were, there were two weeks we forgot. Uh, so... Yes. So don't worry. All right. So we, we're, clo- like we're, we're wrapping it up. For those of you who loved it, I don't know. We're going we're, in the fall. We'll start Galatians. I don't know how, like, how you do that. More hand motions. All right. It's, it's official. We'll come up with hand motions for Galatians. All right. But here we go. I'll start, and then you guys will just a chorus of t- words. All right. Here we go. Ready? that learning has taken place here. How beautiful is that? Well, stay excited, stay fascinated, because uh, we're going to keep learning. Uh, We are at that green dot, revelation, all right? My internet search history is so weird right now, because like, you know, Googling all these like revelation stuff, it will take you some wild places on the internet, okay? Like, there are just, we all, like, if we can just, for a second, just take a time out and admit the book of Revelation, like, we all have a question about it. Is it practical at all? Like, are there any real-life implications from this book? Or is it just, like, scary? Is it, is it just, like, controversial, right? Like, for millennia, no one has agreed on how to read it. Or, I mean, is it just, like, bizarre? Like, is there anything practical that we can get from Revelation, or should we just have ended the series with Paul, right? Like, yeah, Paul, it kind of just wraps up, right? Is the book of Revelation practical? Does anything in this book help us navigate 
following Jesus in 2021? Or is it just divisive? Is it just odd? I mean, even I, like, fall into this, right? Like, so, uh, uh, like, earlier this week, I was listening to the Bible as I was on, like, a walk on the trail, and it got dark, and I'm listening to, and the seven bowls, and I'm like, I wish we were in Galatians now, right? Like, I'm just like, if somebody, if someone runs up to me, I'll just start, like, saying what's in my ear, right? And then the, you know, I'm just like, ah, I'm kind of, it was, you know. Because we all have like different starting points when it comes to this book. This morning, we're not going to satisfy all our curiosities about like which camp is right, how should we read it. Uh, we're not going to get into all the like who are the what are the flying demon locuses. Uh, I'm going to try to like maybe like start to unpack one of the odd mysteries and like who what's up with this 144,000. We'll we'll talk about that. But the book of Revelation uh, fundamentally. It was a letter that was meant to be circulated to seven churches. So the book starts with these letters to these seven churches, and it ends by saying, hey, pass this around. And uh, the book of Revelation, we don't have anything like it today. Uh, it just as far as like a genre of literature, that's why it's so foreign to us and hard to read. Uh, it's because we don't, nobody writes like this today. This would have been very familiar um, to John, the revelator, who's writing in his audience, it's called apocalyptic literature. So even that word right there, like the apocalypse, right? Like um, my, my kids and I, we were walking around uh, the University of Missouri, and we ran into uh, that Boston Dynamics spot. Do you guys know what that is? Like spot the robot dog? I thought it was awesome. My kids were like terrified. It's a, if, Google it. It's like a robot dog. And so, like, if you're afraid the robots are coming, they're already here, okay? And they're at the University of Missouri, okay? And so, uh, is that, like, what the apocalypse is? Like, the robots are coming for us? Um, what does it mean, apocalypse? Well, the, the word apocalypse, actually, uh, it's translated that same word for revelation. is the same word for apocalypse. The, the book opens the apocalypso of Jesus Christ, the, the revelation. What an apocalypse is, is it's not like, the end of the world, comets flying down on you. It just means the revealing, all right? And so what happens in the book of Revelation is Jesus pulls back the curtain and shows where human history is heading to John, and it's intentionally confusing. Apocalyptic literature is, is like a puzzle, and you have to meditate on it. You have to think about it. You're not going to get it your first reading. It's a big puzzle. It's going to take a few winters to put together. And so... As a result, like, a lot of really godly folks, like, please hear me say it. This is so important. If you get nothing else out of today, please hear me say this. There are wildly godly followers of Jesus, men and women, who are following Jesus with everything they have. And some folks read Revelation over here in one camp, and some folks read Revelation over here totally differently. And what we're going to do is we're going to assume the best about both of these folks. All right? So there are people who disagree in this church, in this room. I disagree with myself about a lot of things, all right? And we're going to assume the best. We're going to be like, well, they, they think that because blah, 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 blah. we don't know why they think that. We can, we can believe what we believe, but we're going to have a posture that assumes the best and loves each other. Uh, one, one of my really good friends, he's not a Christian, he's not even like really a seeker, and every once in a while he'll ask me questions about like, Hey, what are Christians fighting about these days? And I'll tell him, and he just laughs. 
He's like, do you, do you guys, do you realize, like, you believe, like, Jesus is king and he's coming back for you on a white horse, but then you fight about these wildly minutia things. Like, I know, I, can you come speak to us? Like, we're, we at this church are united around the person of Jesus who loved himself and gave himself for us, period. And we can disagree about some secondary things like the book of Revelation. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean we take truth and throw it out the window, but it means that we're going to assume the best. We're, we're, gonna, we're not going to, like, set up camps here. Like, you know, after, you know, after the service, as you head out, there will be one door with one view of Revelation and one door with another. Just sign up and we'll throw things at each other. All right? We're going to actually largely try to just, I'm going to try to help give you a, a way to read the book of Revelation that is how the original audience would have read and understood it. Because, again, we don't have any, any kind of literature like this today, apocalyptic literature. It's just not a thing we do today. And as a result, it gets confusing. But there's another reason why the book of Revelation is confusing. It's not just the fact that literarily it's different. It's the, the, the message of the book and the posture of the book is something that we would like to think exists, but we very rarely experienced it. So the message of the book and the way the book presents that message is, is something that we just don't experience often in life. And it's this idea of high love, high challenge. What do I mean by high love, high challenge? Well, so like, what does it mean to challenge somebody? So challenging is like when we say, hey, we're going to correct the ways we've fallen short. Here's an area of your life where, hey, we just think like this isn't flourishing. If you head over here, this is where flourishing is. Correction. Inviting us into greater levels of awareness of how we miss the mark. Maybe it's calling us to a different way of being. Correction. Book of Revelation is high correction. It's also high love. What do we mean by love? That we're cared for, wanted, valued. That, that, that there's not just like a casual, hey, we know you, but hey, we, we, there's a longing for relationship. Book of Revelation is fundamentally, it's seven letters to seven churches, and Jesus is speaking directly through John to these churches in a high challenge, high love. We do not experience that very often in hardly any of our relationships. Hardly any. Like, we've all been on teams at work where our boss is like, we're more than a team, we're a family. And then, you know, they yell at you, they ream you out, and then they're like, but I love you. And it's like, I... I hear those words, but our relationship is just you yelling at me, you being harsh with me. Like, you can say that, but that's not quite matching my experience. That's not high love, high challenge. Uh, if you have a situation that's high challenge and low love, you experience, like, a stressor. It's harsh. So if a situation is like, hey, we challenge each other, but we don't love each other, it's not a life-giving community. It's a harsh community. And, and we've experienced that. Likewise, if you have a community that's high love and low challenge, it's, it's just boring, right? Or it could, it could be worse, like conflict avoiders. We love those, right? If you're a conflict avoider, we love high love, low challenge. So we love being in situations where it's like, hey, you know, how, how do I look in this outfit? And it's like, if I say what I'm really thinking, that will create conflict. So I don't want conflict. So I will just say, great. And then we're not being honest. And, and, you know, it also creates like a cozy environment. If we're a church where every week I'm like, hey, Compass, here's how great we are. Here's how we're nailing it. 
oh, man, this is so great. Everyone should be like us. Aren't we the best? Yeah, there's no areas for growth. Areas for growth, we, we nailed it. I can't think of any. Oh, my gosh. Just keep on keeping on. Eventually, you'll head towards spiritual atrophy. Muscles don't get used, and they, they just stop working. All right? Likewise, if you have a low love, low challenge, I don't even know what that is. It's like strangers on a, on a bus. Like, we don't love each other. We don't challenge each other. It's no, no relationship. But how Jesus presents the message that he has for these seven churches, it's high love. Yes, I love you, and I gave myself for you. And it's high challenge. Okay, here's an area where, where you're not even in the right ballpark. And, and for most of us, we just haven't experienced that, so we're skeptical. Like, like, you know, especially if you just read this passage that we're about to look at really fast, Jesus makes this statement. is like, those whom I love, I discipline and rebuke. And we're like, yeah, that kind of feels like that high challenge, low love. Like, I'll say something harsh, and then I'll just tag, and I love you on it. And it's like, yeah. But as we kind of unravel Revelation 3, it actually sets us on a trajectory for how the whole book is set up. That this challenge doesn't come and with an I love you tagged onto it. This challenge actually comes from a deep place of love and a, a, a desire for Jesus, from Jesus for us to experience true flourishing. He's trying to call the church in Laodicea, which is where we're going to be. He's trying to call the church in Laodicea out of a love for comfort into a, a cruciform life into a life of self-sacrifice, into a life where we die for our enemies. And he's not doing that to make them uncomfortable. He's doing that because of love. A deep, deep love that the church in Laodicea would experience true flourishing, following the Lamb. And so what we're going to do is we're going to use Revelation 3 as like a launching point, and then we're going to try to see kind of the pattern that's used to communicate in Revelation 3 and how that then will help us untangle parts of the rest of the book, like the 144,000, okay? So we're not going to get into all the juicy, wild, like flying demon locusts or what does 666 mean, um, but we're going to try to give you a, a way to, to read Revelation that will help you do it on your own when you go out from here. Because I, I would hate for anyone to think like, hey, I went through a 12-week sermon series on what is the Bible, and I have mastered the Bible. Nailed it. We, this is setting us off on a journey for the rest of our lives, that we want to be people of Scripture who abide, who have our minds shaped by Scripture. It's kind of like, are there, do people still drink tea? Is that a thing? Any tea drinkers out there? All right. We have one passionate tea drinker, right? So I'm told with tea drinkers, like, you, you take a tea bag and you put it in hot water and you let it steep. And eventually the tea permeates the, that water. That's what, that's what the invitation to be a student of Scripture is. It's to abide in the Word and just, just live there and slowly let it seep into the rest of our lives so that we're people who abide. And so today we're looking at this high challenge. We're going to look at the church of Laodicea, the challenge to them, and it's a high challenge. First time we read it, we're like, whoa, glad I don't go to church there, right? And we don't, by the way. Is anyone, all right, help me out here. Are we the church of Laodicea? No. How do I know that? We're in Missouri, right? Probably there's a Laodicea, Missouri. Is that, is that a thing? Whoever named towns in Missouri was just wildly uncreative, all right? But so probably, we're not in Laodicea, Missouri even. But here's the thing. 
uh, the church in Laodicea, there's, the, Jesus has nothing nice to say about them. With every other church, there's like something positive, not Laodicea. All right? That also isn't compass. All right? Like, just you got you to gotta separate yourself before we jump in here. All right? There are challenges we want to receive, but when we receive, it's not a straight one-to-one. All right? But here's the hope. If a church like Laodicea, with nothing good going on at it, can experience renewal, how much more can we be off to the races if we receive this high challenge, high love message that Jesus has for the church of Laodicea? There's beautiful fruit happening here at Compass. It's incredible and it's awesome. And we, can, we still have spaces where we need to experience renewal. And a church which didn't have much beautiful, awesome things happening, they can experience renewal. Man, we have a head start on them, all right? And this is also really hopeful, by the way. Uh, anybody in here, like, kind of, I fall into this of, like, desiring the good old days. Like, oh, it was so easier when teenagers didn't have phones and, you know, they just were present and talked to us and we would have dinner and just have these wildly long conversations. Like when I was a teenager, I would just, you know, converse with my parents about how I'm reading The Economist and I would care about their interests and they'd care about my interests. And now today's teenagers, this was on Snapchat and it's awful. Can't we have the good old days, right? Ask my parents how accurate my memory is, okay? The, the, the right out of the gate, like the book of Revelation, it's like, this is controversial, but I believe, like 90 AD, okay, uh, it, it, right out of the gate, there's problems in the churches, all right? There's no golden era, all right? Right out of the gate, there's still apostles alive, and there, there's conflict, all right? So for those of us, we're like, there's conflict today. It's hard. Oh, we got to go back to this glorious day where there was no conflict. This message is like, no, no, no such day exists. So what I was reminded of this week is Jesus doesn't reveal things in us that need change just, just for fun. Right now, a lot of us are grieving. Like, you know, we hear things like the splintering of the evangelical conscience, how the church is just not getting along, and there's lots of fighting. And it's like, what good can come out of this? Well, the Spirit of Jesus reveals these things because he loves us and wants us to experience renewal. So we're going to step into this high love, high challenge space this morning with the hopes of experiencing renewal. All right, so we're going to talk about the high challenge first, then we're going to get the high love, and that's going to help us untangle some mysteries today, okay? Revelation chapter 3, we're going to be in Revelation 3.14. That's pi, all right? Revelation 3.14. See, look at all the symbolism. Revelation's pro-math. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Probably shouldn't be joking about it this morning, all right? Revelation 3.14. And uh, if you could, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined with fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear 
so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with the Father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. God, I pray as we unpack your word today that we, we would hear what your Spirit says to the church. God, in areas we need challenge, I pray that we would just with open hands receive. God, I also pray that we would, we would see how that challenge comes from your heart. And your heart is one that longs for relationship with us. We are chosen, wanted, loved by you. So God, I pray that we'd hold those two truths together and we'd be people who receive challenge and who live and walk in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. The church of Laodicea, you can have a seat. The church of Laodicea uh, was located between these two cities, Aeropolis and Colossae, okay? Uh, and Aeropolis was kind of like the Florida of the Roman Empire, okay? They were famous because they had these hot springs where like older, retired uh, Roman citizens who would, you know, go, they would, you know, be in the slow lane in their chariots. They would come to Heropolis and they would hang out in the hot springs and it was like medicinal, all right, so Heropolis was just known for these medicinal hot springs that people would just kind of relax in, and it was, it was helpful. It was, if you're in pain, you'd go to these hot springs, your pain would subside, all right? Colossae also had these famous cold springs, okay? And so just great nourishing. It was, it was great. Uh, hey, it's hot out here. It's hot in the Mediterranean. We got water. We're good to go. Laodicea was famous. They were in the middle, and they got, like, just all the runoff, and so there's like some reports that it like made people sick. Like, and so literally when Jesus says, he says, I'm about to spew you out of my mouth, it, it's, it, that word spew is, is vomit. It's like you're making me sick. You're like, well, this is high. This is, this is, this feels, I get the high challenge part, okay? This is kind of harsh. What he's saying basically, it's kind of like saying to like Minnesotans, like, hey, you're as cold as your winters. It's like saying to people from California, you're as shaky as the ground beneath you. He's saying to the church in Laodicea, you guys are acting as useless as your water. All right? You have lost, you have, you have lost effectiveness. I wish that you had one of these two effectiveness, but you don't. See, I had heard this. This had been for popular for many years, this interpretation that said, oh, like to be hot means, oh, I wish you were, like, on fire for Jesus. I wish you just were, like, you know, ready to, like, love him and just be a witness for him and just, woo, ready to go, right? And cold is like, yeah, I don't have anything to do with Jesus. And it would be better for you to be, like, totally turned off from Jesus than to be in this lukewarm position of, like, yeah, some days I have good days and I love Jesus, and some days I have days where I don't care at all. And it's, it's better to be totally turned off than to be lukewarm. That doesn't seem likely to me because if you read, like, if you just think about it for a second, these are letters. They're trying to be like corrections to people. And he's saying this, like, in verse uh, 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. He's saying, Jesus is saying, I would prefer that you'd have one of these two uses. If, if Jesus really preferred 
that the church would rather be, rather than being like in a place of struggling, of being lukewarm, like, yeah, some days I have great spiritual victory and some days I don't care. And if he'd rather than be like totally turned off, it would make sense that he'd just not write a letter. Right? It's just like, hey, you know, these people are experiencing spiritual atrophy. Leave them alone. That's not what he does, though. He's saying there's, you know, here, here, and he's using symbols that they'd be familiar with. He's saying, hey, your neighbors, some go get nourishment and help. And some, some get, like, a nourishment as, like, they get, you know, refreshment on a hot day. You guys don't do anything. You guys have totally lost spiritual vitality. What do we know about the church in Laodicea that would make John, or Jesus, say to the church, You're, you've totally lost spiritual vitality? Well, so today we have these things called unions. So you pay dues, you belong to a union, and you get jobs. In the Roman Empire, they had like religious unions. And so people would pay into these unions and they would get jobs. But they were religious unions. So what, that, what came with that was they would have to worship other deities. So there would be one deity that was like, hey, we're, like the, we're the fishing union, and you got to worship this fish god. And it's like, okay, we'll pay into that. We'll worship that god. And also, it was all couched under worshiping the, the emperor of the Roman emperor as god. So you worshiped, you worshiped Caesar, but then you also paid tribute to all these other gods. And what most commentators believe is that the church in Laodicea was, listen, this is what it says in verse 17, we're rich. It seems like they were playing ball. They were, they were going along with this to make money. Laodicea was already kind of like the Hamptons, the Bel Air. It was like a wildly affluent place. Uh, earthquakes tore the city down several times, and they just kept rebuilding. Right? So I guess that makes them like the Oklahoma of the Roman Empire. Like, why do you live there? Well, we just like it, right? So these people were wildly wealthy, and Christianity, the Jesus movement, was starting to disrupt that. So think, think the Colosseum, right? Christians are being persecuted. And the church in Laodicea is like, hmm, we'd rather not do that. How do we avoid this? Well, we'll just like worship their foreign gods and we'll, you know, we'll just kind of play ball. And you know what? This is working out for us. They, this is what, look, listen, look at verse 17, okay? So this is what Jesus says. He says about that whole, you guys have lost your usefulness. But this is what their assessment of themselves was in verse 17. I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing. So Jesus is saying this, like, hey, you guys have missed the mark. And they're like, we're great. We're totally fine. How do I know that? We're being blessed. We're being blessed financially. We've got money. We don't have any needs. God is blessing us. And that could sort of make sense if you read the book of Deuteronomy, where it says, like, hey, if you do well, God's going to make it rain on your crops. Like, yeah, we're doing that. God's totally thrilled with how we're behaving. But look at verse 20. Here I am. This is Jesus talking to the church. I stand at the door and knock. Now, if someone is knocking at your door, I know there's millennia, 2,000 years between us and this church. This hasn't changed. If someone is knocking at your door, are they in the building or out of the building? Yes, learning is taking place here. They're out of the building. Exactly. All right. Here's what Jesus is saying. I left the building and you all didn't even notice. I'm outside. And you're like, we're rich. This is great. Now, do you think there's anything, any carryover application at all for those of us who go to church in the most affluent nation in human history? 
Do you think there's any correction? Probably. Yes, probably. Here's a danger. Conformity to a sick culture is sickness. Conformity to a sick culture is sickness. Jesus had left the building and they didn't even notice. Why? Because they were making payroll. Because everything, they had a building project. Everything was fine. And they didn't even notice when Jesus left. That's a scary place to be. Like, do I mean, like, look, do not miss that. We can think, oh, man, we've got, we're comfortable. You know, look, other parts of the world, things are wild. We've got God's blessing because it's easy. Do not, do not make the same mistakes that the Laodiceans were making. Don't confuse material success for God's blessing. Just because we have it okay does not mean we are honoring God as Jesus, as Lord in a culture that so desperately needs us to be different. We live in just, we, 2020 brought this out, but it's still like totally at the surface. You know, we live in an Amazon culture, right? Everything instantly. You can get something from around the world instantly. Instant message. Everything is instant. And as a result, we have no endurance. We have no patience. When suffering comes, we don't know what to do. Likewise, because we're, we're all so connected and everything is just about herd mentalities and we just go where everybody's going and we don't want to stand out from the herd, we have developed a paralysis of offending people. We are so afraid of offending people, it's created a gridlock that is preventing renewal. And Jesus steps into that space. And this is what he says to the church in Laodicea. Listen to verse 17. You do not realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Hello, high challenge. Does anyone have a, this is NIV. Does any, mine says wretched. Does anybody say something else? In, the, in verse 17. Nothing? Everybody's got wretched? Okay. That word, that word is the opposite. There's a, in chapter 1, John says that let everyone who read this, they're going to be blessed. Okay? That word for wretched is, it, wretched is, I mean, we don't use the word wretched at all. Uh, you know, oh, I was doing dishes with a wretched sponge. Like, we just, you know, we hear it in the Bible, and we're just like, oh, yeah, that's a normal way to talk. We don't, like, that, no one, I've not heard that word in forever. Okay? So it's like Downton Abbey. Okay? So, like, the word wretched, all right, what, a, a better way to say it is unblessed. So here, here if, you be a, if you want to be blessed, read this book. Hey, church in Laodicea, you think you're blessed? You think you've got all this money? You're actually not blessed. Th this money that you have, is, it, this materialism is not a blessing. It's, it's actually an unblessing, all right? Likewise, uh, here's what I said, pitiful. I actually, I think it's the ESV. Any ESV folks out there? Okay, does it say pitiable? Pity, pity, what is that word even? I, it's, it's way better, but is it pitiable? Am I saying it right? Pitiable, okay. Meaning like we feel sorry for you. Pitiful is like, you're pitiful, you're a mess, you're a dumpster fire. Pitiable is like, hey, you're unblessed, and you think like, hey, we've got it made in the shade. 
you know, we all, we're all driving Benz. We, 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 we've, we've got it. But it's like, no, we actually feel sorry for you. This isn't what blessing looks like. All right? You think you're rich, but you're actually poor, blind, and naked. Remember, John, who's writing this, would have been Hebrew, very familiar with his Hebrew Bible. Nakedness is a symbol for exile. Naked, it, it, Isaiah, Ezekiel, they talk about, hey, you're going to get dragged off into the land in nakedness, not being clothed. He's saying, you think you're experiencing the abiding life with Jesus? You think you're experiencing blessing? You're not. You're experiencing the opposite of that. Their trust was not in Jesus and his abiding presence. Their trust was in their stuff. Anybody's chest getting tight right now. There's a story that is perhaps apocryphal, but it's of a missionary who was in a, a country that, where the church was underground, experiencing persecution. And he came back to one of his supporting churches. And he heard a sermon that he just felt was like totally in this like high love, low challenge bracket over here. Like it was just, you know, there were, there were things that he was experiencing. Like, Why aren't we calling this out? Why aren't we talking about this? And then he experienced other things at the church that were totally in that high love, low challenge. And then the pastor takes him on a tour of the building, shows him how beautiful the building is. Look at this. Look at what we just did a building project. We finished this up. Look at these beautiful, this room here. This hopefully will be used for this one day. And he says, isn't this amazing? And the missionary says, yeah, it's pretty amazing what you can do without God. <laughs> High challenge. As a church, as a people living in the most affluent nation ever, we have to expect that some of that rubbed off on us. And what happens, what's, what's Jesus' concern is that the church has lost her witness. Uh, that you find these clues in these letters as to how they should be interpreted by how Jesus describes himself. So listen to verse 14. These are the words of the amen. Uh, amen is, is an old Hebrew word that faithful, the faithful one, the one who's trustworthy, okay? And then what is, what is this trustworthy one called? He's the faithful and true witness. In all six other letters, Jesus talks about the witnesses of the church. He says nothing about Laodicea's witness. Not only were they not abiding with Jesus, he left the building, they hadn't even noticed they weren't inviting anyone else into this abiding life. That's what happens. We can't serve two masters like Laodicea was trying to do. We can't give our allegiance to Jesus privately. And then on the other hand, expect that we can follow him in a culture that will then see the hope and the beauty of this abiding life. And just like what happened to Laodicea, we had lost our spiritual usefulness. There wasn't, there's not a use for a compromised Christianity. It just doesn't do anything. It's not effective. All right, we're done. See you next week. That's the high challenge. All right? And it's a high challenge. But it's not the end of the letter to the Laodiceans. It doesn't just end with high challenge. Look, it can be easy if we're just reading this fast you look at uh, verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. And we're like, yeah, you just made me feel terrible, but you tagged on, I love you. Thanks, right? That's not what's happening here. We need to read more carefully. And this becomes actually, this helps us, this is like, this becomes like a key to helping us unlock a lot of the rest of the book. 
All right? What does Jesus say? He says in verse 18, I counsel, I'm advising you, I'm, 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 trying, I'm beseeching you, hey, do this. Buy from me gold refined in fire so you can become rich. Hey, don't trust, don't trust materialism. Don't trust comfort. Trust me, I'll really provide. All right? White clothes to wear, that's the key. Hang on for a second. What will those white clothes do? They'll cover your shame and na- nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Salve to put on your eyes so you can see. What was wrong with the church in Laodicea? They weren't seeing reality. Jesus is saying, like, hey, you've lost your witness. And they're like, we're fine. We're, we're, we're blessed. We're rich. We've got this. And Jesus is like, hey, if you abide with me, you'll, you'll grow into a greater level of awareness of who you really are. That's the high challenge. Where are we missing the mark? Well, where's the high love? He's going to give us white clothes to wear to cover the shame of our nakedness. White clothes. In that culture, white clothes came from wool. Okay? When Jesus comes on the scene in Revelation 1, when he first appears to John on the island of Patmos, he's dressed in white and he's got white hair. And we can be like, wait, who sponsored this book? Was this, is this big wool? Is big wool, is this like, is that agenda of the book of Revelation just to get everyone wearing wool? No. Here's what's happening. We get a paradigm shift for how to read the book of Revelation, and it's all about the color white, and it's all about lambs. Okay? Here's where things start to get fun. Revelation chapter 5, okay? Remember, this is a, apocalyptic literature. And so it's not like anything we have today. And so how you figure out apocalyptic literature is you slow down, you got to meditate on it, you read it a lot, and you start to see things. You're like, whoa. So here's a paradigm shift for the book of Revelation. John hears something, and he gets an expectation of what's going to come. So he hears something, and then he turns and he sees something, and it's not what he heard. And so even there, we're like, whoa, the book of Revelation is kind of like challenging how we should think about things. We think about things a certain way. We have this expectation. Then, boom, it's different. Now, the, book of, the rest of the book, after chapter 3, is trying to answer the question, what does Nike have to do with Jesus? Please do not, like, just cut that out of, like, we're talking about Revelation and Nike is all, the book of Revelation is all about Nike. But the book of Revelation is all about Nike, okay? Don't just cut and paste that. But here we go. Uh, So in Revelation chapter 3, verse uh, 21, to the one who is victorious, nikao, that's where we get the word Nike. Like, yeah, we conquered, we won, we're victorious. So here's what he's saying to the church in Laodicea. There's challenges. You're not being a witness, you're loving comfort, but you need to be victorious. He says this, I will give you the right to sit on my throne, just as I, Jesus, was victorious, just as I was Nike. And the question is, how do we be victorious? How do we conquer the world? The world is coming after us. They want to kill us. They keep making us fight lions. Uh, what do we do? How, like this, this, like John was not just doing theology. This wasn't just like interesting, right? Like, hey, like real people were really dying around him. All right? Again, not something I have experienced in my church-going day. I'm, no one has ever died that I know of for being a Christian. All right? So this is not just Paul trying to be interesting. He's saying, hey, the world is coming after you. How do you overcome the world? Nike, all right? And so in Revelation chapter 5, there's, a, there's 
somebody on a throne with the answer, and it, but it's in a scroll. So we got to get that scroll open because the answer to how we overcome the world is in that seven-sealed scroll. And John's like, uh-oh, nobody can open the scroll to give us the answers about how we overcome the world. But look with me in verse 5. So he's crying. He's upset. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Nike. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So here's what he hears. He hears an elder say to him, hey, don't worry. Don't worry. This lion has come and already Nike'd, has already overcome the world. So we're okay. He's going to open the scroll. Okay? So he hears lion. And he's thinking, great. You know, maybe this was always meant. They're making me fight lions. We got a bigger lion. All right, we're going to come back. We're going to overcome. Ha ha, watch out. He's thinking warrior. He's thinking like strong, might. What does he see though? Verse 6. Then I saw, so he hears, then he sees a lamb. What? Looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Okay. So he hears, how are we going to overcome? How are we going to conquer things? A warrior. Who's that warrior? It's a lamb that died. Now we're starting to get this paradigm shift. How do we overcome the world? Jesus did it by dying for the world. He died for his enemies. On the cross, we are not witnessing a failure of this God-man. We're witnessing the God-man on his throne. He is enthroned at the cross. And so how do we overcome the world? We follow the lamb. We participate in self-sacrifice for our enemies. We don't fight our enemies back. And when we trust Jesus, we are clothed in white. As what, as what, the, writer, as what the Laodiceans heard. I will clothe you if you acquire gold for me. If you trust me, I will clothe you in white. This, when he says, I love you and those whom I love, I correct, that's not cheap. He paid with his life to be able to say that. We are deeply wanted, loved, and valued. That's the high love to this high challenge. And it actually presents an even harder challenge. Suffering had come for the church of Laodicea. It's terrifying. This new Jesus movement, it's like, yo, this is hard. Can we just go back to the way things were? Let's try, let's pretend. Let's pretend that nothing happened. All right, we'll just go about business like we used to, and everything's going to be fine. And it's not. It's not. They, they had ended up trusting something that worked them into just spiritual lights out. But how do we? How do we overcome spiritual atrophy? How do we experience renewal? We trust the Lamb. We trust. We trust. Yes, the world is a scary place. Yes, there are things that go bump in the night. Yes, there may even be people who don't like you. What's the invitation? Self-sacrifice. We're not fighting the same thing here. We're not trying to gain power we're not, trying, we're not trying to, like, make a name for ourselves. We're following one who died for his enemies. And wherever he goes, we can go. Because look at God was able to take the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus. Not good. Bad, right? The only innocent who ever lived. Killed. 
bad. And he's able to rescue the world from this bad thing. And he's saying to the church in Laodicea, don't you think I can do that for you? And this actually becomes our identity. All right? Revelation chapter 7, this keeps going. Revelation chapter 7, we get that same hearing and seeing thing. So John hears this weird thing that's foreign to us, 144,000. Lots of people have lots of ideas about how we should interpret this, okay? So he hears like, hey, we're going to seal off 144,000 people. And we're like, what does that mean? Am I one of the 144,000? Are you one of the 100? What do we do? Right? Okay. Uh, Remember, John was not a 21st century uh, American. Okay. He was a first century Hebrew. And he knew his Hebrew Bible. This counting of the tribes is what would have been very common for a census for an army. Okay. And so here's what he's hearing. How do we overcome well, first, this, there's this lamb that looks like it was killed. Okay, that's how we overcome. Well, now that lamb has an army. Okay, now we get serious. All right, so yes, 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 we die for our enemies, and then we pummel them. All right, so first we, first we trust, then we, and then we offer, and then they don't like it, and boom, we fight back, right? All right, he sees that, and he's here. Help is on the way, folks. All right, look with me at ver- in verse 4. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. Where? From all the tribes of Israel. Okay, this remember the original context. Rome is being hard on Jewish Christians. All right, who's going to rescue us? The army is coming. All right, we're going to fight back Rome. We're going to fight back evil with an army. He hears that. That's his expectation. What does he see? Verse 9. After this, I looked, and there was before me a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches, sign of victory, in their hands. And they sang out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. How did Jesus overcome his enemies? He died for them. How do we overcome our enemies? We die for them. This whole idea. Remember, he, he hears, he hears army he, from Israel. He sees great multitude. Can't even count it. And they're from every tribe, nation, and tongue. This multi-ethnic army is the church. And if we read the earlier chapter, it's the church who has been martyred who's died for their enemies. This is sacred. He sees followers of Jesus who followed Jesus all the way. And what what are they doing? They're holding palm trees. They Nike'd. They have overcome. We will not overcome injustice. We will not push back false ideologies with violence and with power. We will, we will overcome by trusting the lamb and self-sacrifice. That is how we overcome. And this actually continues all the way to the end of the book. Revelation 19. Revelation 19, the final showdown. All right? It's happening. Right? It's, the, it's like the, the last battle. All right? Jesus is coming. And, the, and this is verse 14. Or excuse me, well, let's, let's, do, let's do verse 13. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Okay? Now, 
In the sequence of the book of Revelation, the fighting hasn't started yet. But Jesus is already covered in blood. All right? And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven. Who's that? That's that multitude from every tongue, tribe, and nation. We're following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean, just like him. What's coming out of his mouth? Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. Here's what I'm just going to say as you read this. Before the battle starts, he's covered in his own blood and he's armed with what? A sword coming out of his mouth, okay? What's that sword, though? Word. He's going into battle armed with the word of God. God's word is able to help us overcome because of its revealing power. It reveals what's really going on. And we as people, when we abide in this word, we get the high challenge where we see ways that we've fallen short and we see things as they are. And the invitation for us is not to fight back. God will come one day and set all things right. He's coming to judge the quick and the dead, as the King James says. But on our way there, we don't fight back. We self-sacrifice and we die. Now, most of us will probably not have to literally die. We have to do something way harder. We have to daily die for those around us. We have to let our reputation be held in the balance. We have to love people who are prickly. And it would be way easier to say, hey, can I just like die and then you know, be a martyr and be a hero? The following Jesus is a life of self-sacrifice for our enemies. And when we do that, we overcome. See, what keeps us from this life of self-sacrifice is fear. Fear and love of comfort. We think like, man, like, can God bring anything good out of this? Like when suffering happens, we get punched in the face, the car's spinning out of control. It's like, this is just bad. Like, this is awful. I wish things could go back to how they were. This is hard. I don't like it. But when we invite Jesus into our suffering, we experience redemption. And he renews not just us, but he brings new meaning to our suffering. So uh, there's an ancient Japanese art called kintsuji. And what it is is basically uh, tea bowls would fall and break. And they would take this gold lacquer and they would piece them back together. And, and these became wildly valuable. So like shoguns and, and Japanese royalty, they would have like tea bowls that were originally used by peasants. But now they get to be around royals because, yes, they were broken, but the act of putting things back together brought new meaning, new beauty, and, 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 and just a, new, a renewal to what was once broken. And so the question is, is do we trust Jesus with our suffering? So in a minute, we're just going to watch an artist, uh, uh, Kato Fujimura. And what he did, he was actually, he was at, he lived in Manhattan during 9-11. He experienced wild trauma and wild suffering, PTSD for years. Uh, and he found, like, God's glory written in Kintsuji. 
He's like, man, this, this is, we worship and serve a God who makes all things new and can take the worst suffering, whether that's our fear of being a witness or whether that's the suffering, the bad things that have happened to us, he can take that and make something beautiful out of that. So we're going to watch him talking about that in just a minute. Um, but just pay attention to what they use the bowls for at the end. I think it's wildly appropriate uh, for us this morning. So this is Kintsuji. story of Kintsugi. This is a 20th century tea bowl. So Japan lacquer, which is used to mend the broken bowl. And the gold is mended, and you can tell by the way it's mended, the care of the design, the master's touch, his incredible humor is all evident here. And you can just look at it and admire this spider web, right? Trauma, mended, becomes something new, right? Becoming something that, a language that can speak into the divide, into the gap. And there was a tea master in 16th century Japan, Senrikyu who developed the art of tea, this is what Japanese culture is based on now, who developed this form of peacemaking in the midst of feudal, literally, war period. Rikyu came and walked into that. He was able to create an art form of tea. I hold in my hand a North Korean bowl used by commoners in North Korea, but one that Rikyu saw as incredible potential in this ordinary bowl to bring this into high tea of serving shoguns, <laughs> serving dictators and powers, communicated something. That's why this bowl, even though it was broken somewhere down the line, the families of the tea master kept this bowl because they know this was served to somebody important, because it was intentional communication to say, yes, you may be powerful, but there are more powerful things than your power. That's an artist communicating the power. That is to bring humility, creativity, and imagination, what I call sanctified imagination, and that's how this art of Kintsugi began, this mending with gold and making the, the object that is mended more valuable than before it, it was dropped on the floor. The beauty of how God not only mends us, but because we are broken, we are renewed, and this Kintsugi bowl is far more valuable than it was before it was broken.
Jesus is the most creative being ever. Can he take broken, hard, terrible things and make something beautiful from them? Can he take the suffering of a church and use that to create renewal and to invite other people into that renewal? We think he can. And, and what's really important here is to hear his heart through all of this. It's a very popular uh, verse. It's, you know, Christian bookstores. We threw it on mugs everywhere. But it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, I'll come and eat. Again, John knew his Hebrew Bible. That's actually a quote from the Song of Songs. And uh, in the Song of Songs, the, the lovers, the husband and wife, get separated. The husband goes outside, and he's locked outside. He's like, hey, can you let me back in? He wants to get back into that room. Jesus longs to fellowship and dwell with his people. And if this church where there was no witness, where they were so comfortable with materialism, that was their trust, if he longs to fellowship with them, can we be confident that he longs to fellowship with us this morning? That he wants to dwell and abide with you. That what's keeping us from this abiding life is that we just don't trust This message feels too good to be true. But the promise of this passage is that he's at the door knocking, and if we open, he comes and abides. We're going to take communion in a second. Think about even just the the word, communion. We're going to commune. We're going to abide with Jesus as an act of trust. We're going to say there's a lot of things vying for our trust, materialism, nationalism, you name it. There's so many things vying for our trust. We're going to trust you, Jesus. We're trusting you this morning. And communion is a, is a, a picture of that inward reality. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I'm really glad you're here. Skeptics keep us honest. But we ask that you not participate in communion. Just watch. Uh, we believe this is for people, men and women, who have been made new by the blood of Jesus. This is how we commune with Jesus in a special way. There are people lined up all around uh, the edge of this room here. And in just a moment, we're going to, I'm going to exit the stage. We're going to sing and have a time of meditation and prayer. In that time, just grab your communion cups and then come back. And then in just maybe a minute or so, I'll be back and we'll take communion together. So uh, right now, we're going to hand it over to the worship band and As you feel led, just get up and grab communion cups.
remember, it's a, it's a high challenge, high love environment that Jesus speaks. And communion embodies that. Communion both looks back and it looks forward. It looks back at the great cost, the love of that Jesus paid for. He bought us with his broken body. He died. And it looks forward to a time when he's going to make all things new. And because that's happening, it has big implications on how we navigate this world. So it looks backward and forward. On the night he was betrayed, he broke bread. And he said, this is my body. Don't miss these next few words. Broken. He died. The creator God, the one true God of the universe, dies. It's broken for you. Receive that. Let's eat together. Likewise, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We remember today, but we also look forward. Wine is a symbol of abundance, and we are looking forward to a day when God lifts the curse, comes and dwells with us in a new creation. Let's drink in anticipation today. God, thank you. Thank you for the great love you gave us. God, I pray we'd own it. God, I pray that that would shape our identity. We are deeply loved by you. God, I pray we would look forward to the day when heaven comes down and dwells with us. God, we ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. This sermon is part of the ministry of Compass Evangelical Free Church in Columbia, Missouri. We seek to be a church where Christ's love is at work transforming lives through the power of the Spirit to the glory of God. For more information, check out compassefc.com 